Father, we come before you this evening and we just recognize that uh, you are mighty, you are majestic, you are sovereign and holy, uh, righteous and incomparable, that there is no one like you, uh, that you are the most high God, uh, the eternal one, the one who never slumbers, who never sleeps, the great I am. You are all sufficient, Lord, in every single way. You all, you know all things, you're ever present and you're all powerful and yet you are a great and mighty physician. Uh, you are uh, a refuge and strength. You are a rock and a shelter, a safe place. And the God of all comfort, you're the Prince of Peace. And Lord, you know all of these circumstances that we've mentioned tonight. And Lord, we just pray that uh, your hand would be uh, over each of them. Lord, that your presence would be felt uh, in and among these that we've mentioned tonight. Those that are experiencing illness and uh, Lord, hospitalizations and and uh, discomforts, Lord, we pray that you would uh, comfort uh, and strengthen and heal their bodies. And Father, we pray uh, for guidance in all matters. We pray for guidance for uh, our church family, Lord, as we uh, continue to seek your direction in a variety of ways, Lord, as uh, a couple uh, staff uh, positions are vacated, Lord, we pray that you would guide us and lead us each step of the way. And Lord, we pray that uh, that uh, you would guide and, and lead uh, those that are, are retiring, that are uh, phasing out of ministry here at Meadowbrook. Lord, we know they're not phasing out of ministry. And so, Lord, we pray that you would continue to work in them and through them in a great, mighty way for your glory. Uh, Father, we pray now that you would just guide us tonight for uh, our few minutes together, that all that is said and, uh, and received here, um, Lord, would be glorifying to your name. It's in the name of Jesus we gather. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, let's jump right in. Also... Uh, you may have noticed um, that I, we do have some copies of the notes that I have uh, used for this class. I've got a, a, a packet of those on the table. Two left? Okay, well, we'll get some more uh, provided. And, and certainly no pressure to take those by any means, uh, but a few of you have asked about those. And so uh, those are available to you for all four sessions. They're all there together in, in one place. In fact, James... There's a there's a an original copy on my desk. Would you make a few more copies of that? Thank you. Uh, so know that that is available to you. Includes uh, what we'll cover tonight. Uh, but tonight I've, I've titled tonight's uh, message a Christian response to homosexuality. A Christian response to homosexuality. I want to begin by reading Philippians chapter one verses nine through eleven. Uh, because I think this helps set the tone and, and sets a prayer for us as we dive into this topic. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, Paul is writing, of course, to the church in Philippi. Uh, and this is what he says right at the outset. He says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so here we have a, a prayer Paul gives to his, for his audience. He expresses for his audience that, uh, that, they, would, that they would know uh, God more. That they would have a knowledge and a depth of insight uh, that reflects who God is. God's truth and, and what he desires us to know. Uh, but also a, a knowledge that leads to uh, love for him. So love and, and knowledge for God's glory. He prays for his audience that you would love God more, 
uh, and that, uh, that you would know him more. And so as we begin tonight, I do want us to pause and, and pray specifically for tonight, uh, as well as um, our time moving forward, uh, our response when it comes to this particular issue moving forward, that that would be a prayer for each of us. So would you bow with me and, and let's turn to the Lord again. Father, we do pray that we would be a people whose love for you abounds more and more. Lord, that we would be so overwhelmed by who you are and your interest in us. Lord, that we are drawn nearer and nearer to you. Father, we pray that that love for you would well up in us into a desire to know you more and more, to know who you are, to know who you say you are, to know who you are according to the way that you have made yourself known, Lord, certainly through creation uh, and through your written word and through your son. Lord, give us a desire to know you more. Ultimately, we want to love you more. We want to know you more so that we might glorify uh, you, the one and only God. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. It would be rather foolish of me to pretend to have all the answers uh, for every uh, detailed situation and complex situation that's represented here in this room tonight. This is a tough issue. And it's a tough issue because our response to homosexuality has enormous implications for not only uh, this localized church family, not only this household of believers, but also numerous family units uh, who comprise us and a plethora of individuals who are either presently a part of us or who will be in years to come. In other words, this is a personal issue. This is a personal issue involving uh, real people. Uh, We're not simply talking about math. Uh, or science, or history, or economics, or geography. We're talking about people. This is an issue about people. And there may have been a day, uh, sometime past, when we could simply state its wrongness and move on, but uh, that day is no more. And although we have examined biblical texts that address homosexuality and found the consensus from God's Word to be clear, uh, there is much more to say about the gospel and homosexuality especially in our day. And as we've seen, I think, as I hope we've seen, as we've opened up God's Word and uh, looked at what uh, His Word has to say about this issue and the broader issue of marriage and gender and sexuality, uh, I, I hope we've seen that the Bible is not obsessed with homosexual conduct as if it is some greater or, or more reprehensible sin than the rest of them. Uh, but the Bible does consistently condemn all sexual activity outside of marriage including homosexual activity. But nowhere does the Bible communicate that homosexuals are beyond salvation or that heterosexuals are any less in need of salvation. We need salvation and praise God, He offers salvation to all of us by His grace. And church, this is the gospel This is the heart of the message of God's word. This is the heart of the message that uh, we believe. This is the message that we're called to believe, to receive, and to build our lives upon, to build the church upon. And so as we consider a Christian response to homosexuality, I want us to begin again uh, by hearing the gospel. And so to hear that gospel tonight, I I want us to look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And if you 
have a copy of scriptures, you may want to uh, open up the Bible and look at Titus chapter 2. We'll be in it for just a few minutes together. But Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Paul writes uh, this short letter. Uh, and he writes it to Titus, a, a young minister of the gospel. And he writes, and as he always does, he uh, communicates the gospel at the heart of his writing. And so this is what he says in, in chapter 2, verses 11 and following. Paul says, he says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that that are his very own, Eager to do what is good. So five gospel truths that I want us to see from from this message before we uh, move on from from Titus chapter 2 tonight. Five gospel truths that I want us to notice from this text that I believe have implications for how we respond to the gay issue. And so notice first that salvation is offered to all people. Salvation is offered to all people. None are excluded. And no one in this life is beyond the reach of God's saving grace. Meaning we do not pick and choose who is worthy of the gospel. For none of us are worthy of the gospel. And notice second, that we don't deny or resist ungodliness and worldly passions and live upright and godly lives on our own. We do so as a result of knowing the gospel and receiving The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what does this mean? Well, this means that there are uh, no self-made Christians. That none of us are self-made Christians. And and in fact, a self-made Christian is a contradiction of terms. And it also means that all of us are a work in progress. Paul says that God's grace teaches us. Meaning it continues to teach us and to instruct us and to shape us in the present to live lives that honor God. In other words, we haven't arrived. None of us have arrived. We have positional sanctification before God, meaning we are set apart in the eyes of God. We are made holy, set apart as his people. We have positional sanctification before God, but our sanctification is not perfected. We are set apart But we are still sinners. All of us. Now notice third from this text that uh, this life is a life of waiting. It's a life of waiting for Christians. Paul says we wait for the blessed hope. The appearing of Jesus Christ. So this means that although we are spiritually born again here. And reconciled to God even as we live in this life. All is not well. Not yet. It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. But sorrows like sea billows still roll. And Satan still buffets and trials still come. We know this. We live in a fallen world and with personal, deeply rooted proclivities to sin. And so we long and we wait because we know Satan, sorrow and sin will remain part of our earthly experience until Christ comes again. We will continue to face Satan. We will continue to deal with sorrow. We will 
continue to struggle with sin as long as we are here in this life. In other words, though God may heal and deliver in many particular instances, suffering and temptation remain with us for this earthly season of our journey. But we have hope. We have hope. We have great hope in the return of our Savior and King. This life is a life of waiting for followers of Jesus. And notice fourth that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us and to purify us. Meaning this, that our sin cost Jesus his life. Salvation is costly, church. It was not and is not cheap. And so we sing, alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Was it for crimes that I had done, He groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Isaac Watts goes on, he says, Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. And notice, fifth, that the recipients of Christ's sacrifice are eager to do what is good. Friend, are you eager to do what is good? Are you eager to do what honors the Lord? Are you eager to honor him? Are you eager to do what is good because you have been gripped by the grace of the God who redeems, who bled, who groaned, and who died for you? And him continues, this might I hide my blushing face from Calvary's cross appears. While Calvary's cross appears, dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. You see, the love of God expressed in the gospel leads us. Leads us to deny ourselves and take up our crosses and to follow Jesus. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And so those who've encountered the God of the scriptures, those who have been confronted by the grace of the Lamb of God who takes away our sins... We are eager to do what is good. We do so willingly. We lay down our lives willingly, following Christ willingly, if we know the one who died for us. Church, we need this gospel, this gospel that changes lives. This gospel that confronts and corrects, that demands allegiance to the only one who deserves it. The world needs this gospel. So let's live by it. Let's live according to it. Let's joyfully share this gospel. And as we share this gospel, number one, we must treat all people as image bearers of God, people for whom Christ died. So what does a Christian response to homosexuality look like? It certainly looks like the church treating all people as if they are image bearers of the Most High God, people for whom Christ died. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul says, So from now on, We regard no one from a worldly point of view. He says we we once regarded Christ that way, but we don't any longer. We must treat all people as image bearers of God, people for whom Christ died. So we said in our first session that one of our presuppositions as we approach the subject of homosexuality is that we must address the culture in light of the gospel. 
And to address the culture in light of the gospel is not only to acknowledge the seriousness of all sin against the only God, but it is also to acknowledge the deep, deep love of God for every single person made in his image. And friends, this is why it will never, ever do for us to simply say homosexual behavior offends God and then to walk away. If that is our response, we can rest assured that the unbelievers we encounter will remain unbelievers and spend eternity in hell. John writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, he says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But he doesn't stop there. You see, to stop there is to only deliver bad news, no good news. No gospel in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 alone. But John doesn't stop there. He continues, verse 5, he says, But you know that Christ appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. And so for this reason, church, because Jesus never sinned in his earthly life, God could make him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And this is why we can sing. This is why we do sing. This is why we must sing. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss the Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. And so I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death. And resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Friends, his wounds have paid my ransom. A selfish, rebellious, immoral, and hell-deserving sinner. And his wounds have paid the ransom of whosoever will turn and trust him. That is love. John says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You see, the gospel of Jesus declares that there is an intrinsic value applied to every single man and woman and boy and girl that led the eternal son of God and mighty maker of heaven and earth to leave his throne in heaven. And to assume the position of a humble baby who grew up to face temptation and hardship and ridicule and yet never sinned. Also that he could give his life away for you and for me and for every person made in the image of the most high God. The most fundamentally important thing that can be said of a person is that he or she is made in God's image. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's no doubt 
There's absolutely no doubt that we live in a day of identity crisis. And part of our task as believers in the God of the Bible and followers of Jesus Christ is to help people find their true identity. And though sin has marred the image of God in humanity, the work of Christ restores it. And even before it's restored in a particular person's life, the creation account and the gospel mission of God declare that every human life is incredibly valuable to God and ultimately defined by God. Wesley Hill, author of the book Washed and Waiting, writes this. He says, being gay isn't the most important thing about me or any other gay person's identity. I am a Christian before I am anything else. My homosexuality is a part of my makeup, a a facet of my personality. One day, I believe, whether in this life or in the resurrection, it will fade away. But my identity as a Christian, someone incorporated into Christ's body by His Spirit, will remain. Similarly, Sam Alberry writes, he says, The kind of sexual attractions I experience are not fundamental to my identity. They are part of what I feel, but are not who I am in a fundamental sense. I am far more than my sexuality. Rosaria Butterfield tells about her own conversion to faith in Jesus as an unbelieving lesbian and tenured professor of English and women's studies and cultural studies at Syracuse University. She's a public figure today and she tells about her conversion and she says that she was drawn to Jesus by the hospitality of some Christian believers. And she says, this is what she says about that encounter. She says, one of the things Ken Smith This is one of those, um, Ken and and, uh, his wife. One of the things that they did for me was they made me think about one key question. Rosaria, is being a, a lesbian who you are or is it how you are? Is it who you are organically, we would say as a Christian, ontologically, or is it how you are because of original sin? Is it the authentic you or is it Adam's thumbprint on you? And she goes on and she says, if you look at this biblically, homosexuality is never who someone is. It may very well be how someone feels and how someone feels in a very persistent and consistent way for a season of their life, maybe a very long season, but it is never the who, it's always the how. You see, to respond to the gay issue in light of the gospel demands that we see unbelievers as people made in the image of God, people for whom Christ is died the Jesus who said the most important commandment is this hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength but he didn't stop there he said the second is this love your neighbor as yourself there is no commandment greater than than these. In other words, Jesus is asked about the greatest commandment and he responds with two commandments. He can't just respond with one. The response of Jesus suggests that at least in his mind, you cannot separate love for God and love for your neighbor. Your love for God leads you to love your neighbor because he loves your neighbor. 
And church, the love of God compels us to love all people as our neighbors. The love of God compels us to love all people as our neighbors. And Luke's account of a similar conversation about the greatest commandment. Jesus moves seamlessly from that conversation into the parable of the Good Samaritan in order to define who our neighbors are. You see, true love is costly. To show love usually takes time. It's a big investment to love our neighbors because to love someone, we really need to know them. Who do you know? That's dealing with same-sex attraction. Who do you know that embraces homosexual behavior? In fact, how about a show of hands for someone who knows someone who wrestles with homosexuality or practices a gay lifestyle? Most of you. Next question. How are you loving them? Are you loving them? Zaria Butterfield describes how Ken and Floyd Smith loved her by inviting her into their home again and again and again. Consistently and compassionately developing a deep friendship with her in order to tell her about the God of the Bible. And she says, this is what she says. She says they were masterful at remembering that they were talking to me. They weren't talking on a podcast to a bunch of other believers who wanted to sound theologically smart at dinner parties. They weren't sitting down for a seminary exam. They were talking to me, a pretty lost soul. And they also knew that sin is deceptive. She says, and sometimes I, I think we forget about that. To be deceived means to be taken captive by an evil force to do its bidding. That's pretty powerful. She says that Satan would love for you to do nothing more than to continue to reject deceived people so that they just solidify their allegiance to Satan. She says, but Ken and Floyd were not going to go there. They were very mature Christians, and because of that, they could handle someone like me. You know, I think, church, that one of the reasons we don't readily engage in evangelistic conversations or hospitality ministry is that we have a shallow view of the gospel. We forget the greatness of the gospel. We forget that the gospel has quite a track record for saving sinners. Through the gospel, God reorders and he renews and he redeems. That is not our role. That is his role. That is God's role. And yet he has chosen to use fallen and frail human messengers to engage in the messiness of ministry that is known as loving our neighbors. Stanton Jones, a professor and former provost of Wheaton College says this. He says, if you cannot empathize with a homosexual person because of fear of or revulsion to them, then you are failing our Lord. Friends, through the gospel of grace, God redeems. If he has redeemed you and he has redeemed me, then how could we not love every kind of unbeliever who is in need of his saving grace? So let's love our LGBTQ uh, neighbors, every single one of them, and trust Jesus to work through those relationships for his glory. And of course, compassionate love, biblical love, includes maintaining biblical convictions and speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4. 
And so our Christian response to homosexuality demands that we love and value all people as image bearers of God and that we tell them the truth of God, meaning that we must not deny the sinfulness of homosexual practice. Christian response to homosexuality means, I think, that we cannot deny the sinfulness of homosexual practice. As many have and are doing today. Many theologians, many scholars, many preachers and leaders are questioning the traditional historic understanding of biblical marriage and not only embracing but celebrating alternative sexual expressions as Christian. And let me be quite clear, to do so is not loving our neighbors, but lying to them. Our Savior came full of grace and truth, and we will do well if we follow his example. Now, no doubt, there is a way to do this that honors Jesus and advances the message of the gospel. And there is also a way to do this that dishonors Jesus and regresses the message of the gospel. In fact, as I prepared for tonight, I talked with a friend of mine who wrestles with homosexuality, but who also claims Jesus as his Savior. And we don't uh, agree on everything when it comes to this issue, a mutual understanding of that. But I asked him in prep for tonight, I said, how can the church better love, uh, show the love of Christ to the gay community or those who deal with same-sex attraction? And without hesitation, this is what he said. He said, for years I have prayed for God to heal and change me. And it hasn't happened. He said, don't try to change me. If the churches tell me I'm sinful and wrong, I I don't feel welcome there. But if they say, let's have a conversation about faith and you are welcome to come in and worship here with us, then I feel welcomed and loved by them. You see, contrary to the predominant message of our day, to deny what the Bible teaches about gender and marriage and sexuality is to, to fail to love people. But contrary to the message that has often been practiced in the church, we must engage people where they are. And love them the way Christ has and does love us. We must not deny the sinfulness of homosexual practice. But we must not minimize the pain involved in overcoming same-sex attraction and homosexual behavior. We must not minimize the pain involved in overcoming same-sex attraction and homosexual behavior. Given the cultural shift and public exposure regarding homosexuality in the last couple decades, I don't think many of us have to be convinced that same-sex attraction is a real and deeply rooted thing. It's not made up. It's not especially rare. It is real. And it affects numerous image bearers of God and people for whom Christ died in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, and in our church family. Dr. Daryl Bach, who's a widely respected New Testament scholar and professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, said, I distinguish between people who are hardwired, same-sex attracted, and people who are softwired, same-sex attracted. And by that, I think he means uh, for some, uh, same-sex attraction is simply a possibility. But for others, it is all-consuming. My friend that I mentioned earlier said to me, he said, I am constantly fighting for my faith and to reconcile my faith and sexuality. 
Church, we must not minimize the pain involved in overcoming same-sex attraction. Pastor and professor Doug Webster, a friend of mine, writes, he says, if I compromise biblical truth by denying the sinfulness of homosexual practice, I am as guilty as if I committed the sin myself. But he says, if I, if I make light of the personal suffering and emotional pain involved in breaking off homosexual relationships, I am a deceptive spiritual director. To resist a deeply instilled sexual drive is a very painful test of faith. We must neither deny the sin nor minimize the pain involved in overcoming it. You see, too often we have minimized the pain in overcoming it. We have dissected biblical lists of sin, minimizing the painfully personal things the Bible says to us and people like us, while magnifying the painfully personal things the Bible says to people who are unlike us. Remember what the Apostle Paul said, Romans chapter 7. Paul pioneer missionary to the Gentiles and the author of 13 New Testament letters, a hero in our faith. This is what Paul says, Romans chapter 7, verse 15. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Verse 18, he goes on, he says, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Says verse 22, for in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. He says, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ. Our Lord, you see, only Jesus Christ can rescue us from our brokenness and sin. Only Christ Jesus can deliver us from a preoccupation with popularity. Only Christ Jesus can deliver us uh, from an obsession with riches. Only Christ Jesus can deliver us from greed and gossip and gluttony. And only Christ Jesus can deliver us from addiction to alcohol, sex or pornography. And only Christ Jesus can deliver us from homosexuality. We return to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and following. With a text that we examined last week, Paul writes, he says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, our ability to overcome specific sins, including, church, homosexual behavior for many, is only evidence of the Lord's work in our lives. Washed sanctified, justified in the name of Christ and by the Spirit of God. We are the recipients of what God has done to us and for us and in us. 
And so again, there is no room for boasting. There is no self-righteousness, for self-righteousness is like filthy rags before God. Only Christ's righteousness imputed to us accounts for anything at all. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Christ has become for us righteousness and holiness and redemption. In other words, we receive his righteousness. And because he is holy and because we are saved by his grace, he sets us apart as holy. He accomplishes our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so just because same-sex attraction isn't a real thing for you and for me doesn't make it any less of a real thing for Susie or Ted or Becky or John, all made in the image of God. We must treat all people as image bearers of God, people for whom Christ died. We must not deny the sinfulness of homosexual conduct. We must not minimize the pain involved in overcoming same-sex attraction or homosexual behavior. And finally, we must be a safe place. We must be a safe place for folks struggling with same-sex attraction to share their struggles and to receive Christ's honor and help. Let me say that again. As a family of faith, a body of believers, people who know the truth and follow after Jesus, we must be a safe place for folks who are struggling with same-sex attraction to share their struggles and to receive Christ's honor and help. If they don't receive it among us, where are they going to receive it? David Platt states, he says, it has become commonplace, even applauded for men, so to speak. It's applauded for men to be honest with other believers about the struggles with heterosexual sin. But the men who struggle with homosexual thoughts and desires have no place to run to many times in the church. This is a problem and we need to share life with each other, honestly, with each other. And so, church, we must be a safe place for folks struggling with same-sex attraction to share their struggles and to receive Christ-honoring help because all of us are at various points along a continuum toward eternity in our struggle with sin. And we all need Christ-honoring help. We need a family of faith. We need a body of believers. We need a church that will love us unconditionally, that will speak the truth to us honestly, and that will intercede for us regularly. Sin runs deep. Sin runs deep in all of us. And for any of us to pretend otherwise is to display the very pride that led to the fall in the first place and to minimize the cross that saves. We cannot forget the life of bondage to sin from which we have been graciously rescued yet with which we still wrestle. This is how Paul describes life apart from Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 19. He says, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they are full of greed. In that passage, he's describing a transition, a transformation that takes place in the lives of believers from a life before Christ or without Christ to to salvation, conversion in Him, and what is to follow. In other words, quite frankly, this is what sinners in need of God's grace do. This is how they behave. In the words of one unlikely convert, there is a core difference between sharing the gospel with the lost and imposing a specific moral standard on the unconverted. 
And Paul says, this is how we behaved until we knew Jesus. He goes on, Ephesians 4, verses 20 and following. He says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. He says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, your life without Christ, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Church, it is because we believe God makes things new. Because we believe that God makes uh, people new. That we do everything in our power to make this a safe place for sinners to share their struggles and to receive Christ-honoring help. Which means we do everything in our power to help the lost know the Christ who saves and to welcome sinners to gather with God's people. So we must treat all people as image bearers of God, people for whom Christ died. We must not deny the sinfulness of homosexual conduct. We must not minimize the pain involved in overcoming same-sex attraction or homosexual conduct. And we must be a safe place for folks struggling with same-sex attraction to share their struggles and to receive Christ-honoring help. And such a response maintains true biblical convictions and displays real deep compassion and is, I think, a Christian response to homosexuality. Now, I know there is much, much more that could be said on this. Much has been said, much will be said. But this is where we must begin. Standing upon the truths of God's word, maintaining biblical convictions, submitting to God and what he says, standing upon his truth but also coming alongside sinners. Broken, hurting people, both within the church and out in the world, and walking alongside them that they might hear the truth and ultimately come to know and follow Jesus Christ. Amen? I want us to pray. I want us to pray for the Lord's direction the Lord's help, the Lord's guidance. I want to confess where we've not handled this issue well. And ask Him to lead us moving forward. I want a prayer of confession and a prayer of commitment. Commits to stand upon the truths of God's Word, but to do so with a grace and a patience and a kindness and a love that reflects the very gospel that we say we believe. And so let's pray to that end. Would you bow with me? Father in heaven, we, we count it a great privilege. What a humble privilege to call you our Father. The almighty maker of heaven and earth. The one who is in a category all by himself. The creator of, of all life. And yet you invite us into your family Lord, undeserving, broken sinners who have rebelled against you and gone our own way, who have neglected to worship you. And yet you have rescued us. You have chased after us.
You've chastened us and you have drawn us by your Spirit's conviction and and presence and redeeming love. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for the great privilege of being in your family and being what your word describes as co-heirs with Christ. Recipients of the promises. Awaiting an inheritance in heaven that can never perish or spoil or fade away. Lord, you are so good to us and we are so undeserving. Lord, may we never lose sight of of those gospel truths. And Father, we know, we know that the issue of marriage and gender and sexuality and homosexuality is, is an issue that is front and center in our day. Lord, not only in the culture, but in the church. And Father, we confess tonight that we have not always dealt with this issue well. But for many of us, it's been a joking matter, a laughing matter. Forgive us. Lord, for others, we have not stood upon the convictions and truth of your word. Forgive us. And Lord, guide us going forward. May we be a church family. May we be brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters in the faith that, that believe your word. Lord, that are hungry for your word. Lord, that stand ready and desiring to be corrected by your word. And that proclaim the riches of your grace that you have lavished upon us. And that you desire to lavish upon whosoever will come to know and follow Christ. Lord, may we be a gospel light here on this hillside. In the Meadowbrook neighborhood, Highway 280 corridor. Lord, may we be faithful. May we be salt. May we be light. May we be loving in every sense of the word. And Father, may there be others, other churches across Birmingham and across this state, across this country and around the world who likewise are salt and light in their communities. Lord, who stand upon the truth of your word, proclaim it with conviction and live it out. May we live it out, Lord, not only when we come together in this place, but may we live it out in the workplace, in the marketplace, in our neighborhoods, Lord, in our homes. We acknowledge that we need your presence and we need your grace in order to do so. Guide us, Lord. We desire to be led by you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.